So when we talk about holistic or complete education, we need to make sure that everyone understands how all these pieces of the puzzle, you know, just something like you can't outwork a bad fork there. You, you know, you, you, if you're if you're training hard and you're not eating right and you're not sleeping right, you're not managing your stress, you're not worrying about, you know, on the mental side, like, you know, you're going to get limited results. And um, we know that it could be extremely overwhelming for people. So that's why we talk about the 1%. When we talk about 1%, like what's your 1%? Because you want to get 1% better every single day. So um, we can incrementally build great habits and people to start feeling better and uh, enjoying making it to retirement and then enjoying that much deserved retirement when they get there. Welcome to the Driving Forth Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, turned performance coach to founder CEOs, and avid Brazilian jiu-jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Adam LaRue. Adam is the co-founder of O2X Human Performance, founder of One Summit, and a former Navy SEAL Lieutenant Commander. After serving just over 11 years in the Navy, Adam knew that a common thread for him was, and still is, to serve others. He also knew that he wanted to start his own business. The coupling of these two passions led him to getting a master's at the Harvard Kennedy School, which then helped to navigate the transition to starting both One Summit and O2X in 2014. One Summit is a nonprofit focused on building resilience in children with cancer through experiential learning, rock climbing events, and powerful Navy SEAL mentor relationships with each patient. O2X is an organization that provides world-class training and integrated educational experiences that improves the health, safety, and performance of the country's tactical populations, think first responders, military, and federal agencies, and other elite organizations. In this interview, we discuss Adam's upbringing and what inspired him to become a Navy SEAL, his time in the Merchant Marine Academy, and all things One Summit and O2X. And so, without further ado, my interview with Adam LaRue. Adam, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Chase, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So how, was, uh, how have you been adjusting to life in the current pandemic uh, situation since this whole thing got started? You know, um, operating remotely and, um, you know, whether it's uh, through, you know, virtual means and communicating guidance uh, from afar is, is something that I, I definitely have been accustomed and used to in the military. Right. So, uh, you know, I think we we transitioned pretty well from this type of work. There wasn't much adjustments from an organizational, um, you know, or even internal battle rhythm, but, you know, clearly from um, how we talk and discuss and how we work with our, our, um, our clients, it changed a lot. You know, we did a lot of in-person workshops we have. So we transitioned to some virtual, we have, uh, like mobile apps and portals and online learning, but it was less of a, uh, a focus in the past and a little bit more of a priority now. Right. Right. And how about kind of for you personally? Personal level. Um, well, I got a home gym and, 
that I've always been working out there. So that's been, that's been great. So my morning routine is pretty much, uh, remains the same. Um, gotcha. wake up, wake up and check email, try to get ahead of the day a bit. Uh, you know, go for, uh, you know, get, get, get a workout in, get a nice sweat in and then kind of transition, but working from home's a, a little bit different. I spent usually probably 50%, maybe a little over 50% on the road with work. And, uh, I, it's nice, it's nice to be home. Um, my wife is pregnant, so I get to help, uh, I get to help her, uh, quite a bit now, which mm-hmm. is, uh, which is nice to be around too. So personally, um, you know, I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing the team in person, getting back on the ground with, uh, with our clients and, you know, teaching stuff like that. But I, I do enjoy, uh, being home with family, maybe a little less travel than, than normal. Yeah, that's uh that's great. And and where where you um where do you call home? So, uh well, originally I'm from New Jersey. Um but I I do live uh south of Boston now. I'm in uh Situate, Massachusetts and and that okay. is where O2X is as well. Got it. Okay. I'll get shifting gears here a little. Um I want to kind of take it back to uh the beginning. Um and it and you just mentioned that. So you grew up in New Jersey? That's right. Okay. And did you grow up in like a military family? Like was the kind of the, the military a big part of your family? No, actually not at all. Uh, my father was drafted and he spent three years in the army, but uh, military was, was definitely not on the, um, was not a focus. And, uh, you know, being from New Jersey, there wasn't too much uh, military influence up uh, Northern New Jersey, New York area. Um, you know, a couple of kids going, enlisting in the military every year. Um, that, that was pretty much the extent of it. Interesting. So what then sparked your interest? You know, from a pretty young age, I mean, I, I was always fascinated, uh, with the military and playing sports and asking my dad about his time in the military. Um, that was something I always really was, was fascinated and excited by. And I never really kind of never really shook it. Uh, early on, I had a goal of you know going into the military or serving, uh, going to a military academy. Uh, I knew I wanted to go to college right out of high school, and that was something that I was I was excited to pursue. And it actually starts really early. Um, you know, eighth grade is your preliminary applications go into a military academy. So right. you know you, you kind of have to have a idea fairly early. Um, to stay on top of everything. And then, of course, there's nominations from, um, you know, you know, senator or congressman um, that you need. So it's, a, it's quite a process along the way. So, you know, fairly young, I'd say I was fascinated with that, uh, maybe like, you know, fourth or fifth grade. And then I, I pretty much locked in seventh and eighth grade. And then, I, you know, as soon as I found out what the SEAL teams were and mm-hmm. what Navy SEALs did and their their job and traditions and the history behind it. I was, uh, I was sold. Right. Yeah. And were you, were you considering other branches of the military, like other potentially special operations routes or were you kind of, when you found out about the Navy SEALs, that's what you kind of focused your efforts towards. That That's what I focused my efforts towards. Um, you know, I remember, having conversations pretty young, like eighth grade with my, my guidance counselors at the time. You, I'm sure you remember those times where that, you know, you'd sit down once a year with your guidance counselor. They talk about, you know, high school, um, 
you know, what your, what your goals and aspirations are and what direction you're going to go in. And, and I remember saying, Hey, I want this I was discussing preliminary applications. And, um, I was talking about my, my options or pathways. And I, I pretty clearly remember the conversation about, Hey, you know, you know, your, your ideas are going to change, um, a lot of times. And I'm sure it's the same kind of shtick that they give guidance counselors to give to everybody. You know, they just say, Hey, you're, your chain, your your likes and dislikes will probably change, and you know, don't worry about that. But um, I definitely had my heart set on it, and uh, it didn't really change much for me. Yeah. And so, what what led you to the Merchant Marine Academy uh, and not the Naval Academy? So I applied to both. Um, I actually didn't get into the Naval Academy. Got it. Um, I was um, and I was waitlisted at the Merchant Marine Academy, so I was an alternate for that. And I never heard of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy before. Uh, before my dad uh, read an article in the newspaper, he cut it out, and uh, he gave it to me. He was like, "We should go check this place out," because obviously knew I was, you know, my mom and my dad were incredibly supportive of anything I wanted to do growing up. Um, so they, you know, kind of helped me in my my journey there. He shared me this article about U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, and I didn't know what the Merchant Marine was back then. Um, and uh, we we went to, on a visit. Uh, it's in Kings Point, New York, so it's uh, right over to Throgs Neck Bridge in Long Island. Pretty incredible place. I remember going there and I said, "Hey, you know, I'll, I'll put my application in here too." And as you're going through that, you know, that application process, it's just like every other high school kid. You know, you have to apply to multiple schools. You don't know how things are going to shake out. I took my SATs probably about, you know, eight times, <laughs> Princeton <laughs> review multiple times, uh, studied on my own flashcards, everything. So, yeah, you know, obviously getting involved in playing sports and, you know, focusing on academics and doing what you can to make your application as competitive as possible. So that's how, that's how I discovered the Merchant Marine Academy. Got it. And, um, I guess what are the main differences between the Merchant Marine Academy and the Naval Academy? Um, well, I mean, obviously I have a lot of friends. Most of the SEAL officers um, come from Naval Academy, so not not of you know full transparency. I, you know, I, I didn't go there, but I have a, I have a lot of friends um, that did. Now, in, in Naval Academy, uh, it's it's a bigger school for sure. Um, you know, they have quite quite more uh, attendees. Uh, our students or midshipmen than um, than the Merchant Marine Academy does. Uh, a big thing about the Merchant Marine Academy, and not many people know, is that you can go in any service when you graduate. And so you can go in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, National Guard. So it's a, it's an incredible opportunity. I always say it's like the best it's the best kept secret. Um, right. It's one of the five fed, federal service academies. So there's West Point, Annapolis, Air Force, Coast Guard, and there's there's Naval Academy, Merchant Marine Academy. So it's it's a unique that you know you have the opportunity to go in any branch of the service that you want. Now there's requirements when you're there. You have to you know to go into the Marine Corps. You can't just decide your senior year, hey, I just want to go in Marines. But we had a um, you know from our class we had you know, fighter pilots, guys that eventually became Blue Angels. We had people go in through, you know, the U.S. Army, um, you know, helicopter pilots, Coast Guard. I mean, incredible, um, really incredible. Such a diverse group. 
that I continued to run into throughout my military career in uh, different branches of service, which was, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's cool. So when you graduate, do you, whichever branch you choose, are you, do you go into that branch as a commissioned officer? Yeah. Yep. So everyone it's, it's a federal service Academy. So a part of your requirement is that you have to go five years active duty or eight years in the U.S. Merchant Marine. So for those that don't know U.S. Merchant Marine, what is everything, all our imports, exports, how do we get supplies overseas, um, how do we move, you know, goods uh, between different countries? A lot of it's done through shipping in the shipping industry. And that's what the Merchant Marine is all about. So if you do go in the Merchant Marine um, and you choose to go that direction versus, um, you know, active duty, you do eight years. And then a part of that eight years, you have a requirement to do two years of your, you get your commission. Everybody gets a commission in the Naval Reserve. So you have to do um, your Naval Reserve time during those years as well. So that's a part of that requirement. But very interesting, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academies, because I think on average, when I was uh, going through school, uh, on average, I think you'd see like 25 different countries on average. Each student would see 25 different countries before they graduated. Wow. And um, that, that was quite an opportunity. And you're working during that time. So you're serving on car carriers, um, military preposition ships, um, container ships, oil tankers. I spent a lot of time on oil tankers and tra- um, and uh, like row rows, roll on, roll off vehicles or uh, vessels, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so I got, got through the Mediterranean, Northern Europe. I was in the Middle East, um, you know, so really got to do a, um, uh, you know, some supplies, a container ship out of uh, LA, the one LA, Oakland into Hawaii, bringing import uh, goods back and forth to there. So got to spend a, a quite a bit of time on very large vessels, like thousand foot vessels, unlimited tonnage uh, vessels, which is the requirement. You had to get 365 days out at sea in four years in order to sit for your Coast Guard exam your senior year. And which is, <clears throat> for people who don't know what that, you know, what that merchant marine test would look like. It's either an engineering test or a, uh, a decky like a, a navigator type test and it's kind of like a cpa exam it's an eight-part test um or multi you know it's a, it's a considerable uh, amount of studying that goes into it especially your senior year so it's a culmination of your four years of practical experience and education and it's a it's a really specialized degree um, pretty interesting pretty unique and uh, it was a pretty exciting place to go to school yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. So, do you think that because you didn't get into the Naval Academy and were waitlisted into the Merchant Marine Academy, you came in with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder? Um, no, you know, I, I there was definitely disappointment. I mean, there's there was disappointment that I, you know, I wanted to go in, but that that disappointment and you know, there's a lot of different paths, uh, a lot of different routes to the summit of a mountain, and um, I was able to you know, find another pathway. Um, when one door kind of shut, you know, another door open, I was actually waitlisted, um, or I was an alternate with, you know, for the merchant Marine Academy. I graduated from high school and I, and I got in about five days before boot camp started. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, yeah, yeah. So I didn't have much time to kind of prepare for the Merchant Marine Academy <clears throat> either, although I was training and running and I was excited about it. And, uh, you know, I, that was just an incredible opportunity. And it, to be honest with you, Chase, if I had to do it all over again, I would choose the exact same path that I did. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a there's not a minute. The friends that I've had, the experiences, the res- levels of responsibility from a leadership perspective, um, and then the, the the responsibility even out at sea. And it's just such a unique education, such a hands-on experience. Um, I'm a big supporter now. It definitely is, uh, I think, a pretty common saying from the Merchant Marine Academy, it's definitely a better place to be from than be at. It definitely wasn't your typical college experience um it's not you know you're not you're not there to you're not there to party um and there's 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 none of that you're kind of in quarantine for four years for the most part you're not allowed out out of the campus there's different uh um i guess privileges that come as you escalate through the you know as you progress through between your your plebe year all the way to your first class year which is your senior year so I mean, until you're a senior, you're not allowed to have a car on campus. You can't have a car, you know, you can't have a phone, you know, back then when there's, you know, cell phones were just coming out. So it was, it was quite a different of ex, uh, experience, but it was, it was well worth it. And, um, he said, I, my, my closest friends now all doing amazing things. Some still active duty, some merchant Marine, some CEOs of companies, just, uh, just an incredible place to, um, to go. Yeah. So did you did you play sports at the academy? I did. Um, I was so I I came in. Um, I played rugby uh, for most of my time there. Uh, we had a really uh, really competitive rugby team, um, and then I also played baseball. Got it. So I guess during like traveling to those games, you were you're able to get out of the campus for those. Yeah. Yep. That's it. And that was, that was big for, I think every, well, everybody there is, is required to play a sport. Um, or you had to, uh, yeah, you you had to play a sport or be involved in some sort of athletic or I think the only, um, caveat to that is if you were in the band, then, you know, that was your kind of, that was your sport. Uh, but between, you know, really most people, you're surrounded by athletes, the entire, you know, the entire school is very active and athletic. Um, and I think sports gave you the discipline, um, but it also gave you an outlet to get off campus and, you know, your, your little bit of freedom. And uh, it felt good to go to practice. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So did anyone else? In Even your- felt better, felt felt better going to games too. When you were like travel to <laughs> yeah, different yeah, places yeah. and tournaments and, you know, you go to uh, – you're playing a tournament at uh, like a big time school, like a rugby program was uh, like a division one rugby program. So you're, you're playing big schools. You get that, you know, that experience, um, you know, really just interesting to see, you know, that other side. Right. Yeah. And so did anyone else in your class at the Academy have the desire to become an Navy SEAL? You know, not my class. Um, there were, uh, I, I trained mainly with this, uh, the Marine Corps, um, detachment that was there, that group, they had a, a you know, pretty robust, um, pretty amazing, uh, like Marine commissioning program. And that was the toughest, you know, thing, uh, training that they had on campus. There was a gunnery sergeant who, who ran the training there. Um, a lot of running, um, a lot of like body weight PT, um, a lot of obstacle course running, things like that. The, you know, so that gave me 
a little bit of exposure into maybe some of the things, more of the military style training. There was a little bit that happened there as part of the school, but overall, most of my training, um, like as far as the PT and running outside, uh, what I was doing on my own came from just inter- integrating with the, the Marine Corps commissioning program. Got it. Okay. And so do you go straight to BUDS after you graduate? So yeah, the the SEAL applying to BUDS, which is a basic underwater demolition SEAL training, applying to BUDS um, there for officers, you're either getting selected from the Naval Academy. There's most of the billets are coming from there. Uh, you can go through officer candidate school, um, OCS, or you got through a spot through ROTC, ROTC. Yep. Um, and so I applied for a ROTC billet. Um, so there's, there was a lot, I think my, um, it's about 800, 800 people, 800 to a thousand people applying for 10 spots to buds and, um, was lucky enough to pick up and get one for, uh, for buds. So nine 11 happened. My application was in like seven days after nine 11. And, uh, I was lucky. I found out right around Christmas time that I got a slot for seal training. And then right when I graduated, I was, uh, I went right there. Wow. And did you, did you graduate buds first time through? I did. Yep. Yep. So as an officer, you only get really one shot at it. Um, so you, you get an opportunity to go. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's your, your kind of one, your one chance to, um, you know, kind of go through. We started our training class with about 198, um, we finished with 18 originals from the class. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some rollbacks from classes before because how it happens is obviously naturally some people some people will get injured or hurt. Um, and if they do, if someone gets injured or hurt, they might roll back into your class. But we had 18 original from that, that 198 that we started with. Um, roughly about uh, eight months of training. And then you go into more advanced training and um before before earning your your trident so probably all all in probably about a year and a half a little maybe a little bit more before you know getting your title as a as a navy seal which you really don't know anything at that time but it's just you know you you finish the the selection course and now you're now you're a new guy and now you go back to your team to where you really you learn that's where you learn everything you know you learn it through your the people that are there before you and um you know, those have the, that have the experience that are there to train kind of help you along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like if you ring the, if you ring the bell as a, as an officer, that's, that's it for you. That's right. You're going back to, uh, you know, you'll go to big Navy and, you mm-hmm. know, finish your time out some other job. Yeah. The fleet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so how many years did you end up serving? So just over 11, um, just over 11 years, about 11 and a half. Okay. And where did you get deployed to? I uh, mostly, um, I'm mean, obviously middle East most of the time. Sure. Um, okay. you know, obviously with, uh, operation Iraqi freedom and operation enduring freedom lot to, um, you know, those areas of operation. Um, and you know, just like a lot of other services part of that, that was where 
a lot of us were were headed to um, pretty much every year. So uh, quite a, quite a few uh, rotations back and forth. And when you're back, you're training. And when you're overseas, you're you know you're doing work. And it's constant. You're constantly in a cycle of professional development, training with your team, deploying, and then hit and repeat. Yeah. And what are some of the biggest, some of your biggest takeaways from your experience serving as a Navy SEAL? You know, um, it's a, that's a tough question. It's a good question. Um, and I think, you know, I think I still, I'm still learning these things too. You know, as you get further along in, in business, you think a little bit more about your experiences and, and kind of how all these things cross, you know, you know, kind of work out together. I'd say high level, you know, I think, you know, I learned a lot about relationships, like building strong relationships and, and strong partners, um, getting working and collaborating, um, on very tough, challenging problems. Obviously it's, it's team, you know, I, and it's obviously everything as a team, but the team first mentality, I mean, I can go back to my family, my parents, my mother, my father, how I was raised, like the values of, you know, I was lucky. I kind of hit the lottery with my with my mother and father and the environment um, that I grew up in, and they were very disciplined, very tough. Um, you know, they they held high standards for you know for us, my older sister and younger brother, and they were very supportive. But a lot of that I brought, and a, I think a big part of what they created at the home life definitely led me towards the SEAL teams because it was to me, very similar values. And that kind of continued along that track of, um, that pathway and, and building relationships was, was important. Um, you know, team first mentality, um, of course, um, to be able to, you know, be, you know, heard the term, be comfortable, being uncomfortable, be, be unco- you know, being uncomfortable and, you know, you got a plan, but understand that no plan survives first contact and, you know, you got to have the adaptability. And I think that's really important in business. Um, especially, you know, you take a time like right now, you got to adapt. Um, you got to put your people first all the time. Um, you know, you, from a good leadership perspective, obviously I felt like it was a, you know, it was a leadership position that was, you had to earn. Um, everybody is a leader there. Um, it's a position that, you know, you don't, it's high risk game and you don't really get too many second chances on things. So you had to be very disciplined at your craft. You had to be very good at what you were doing. You had to be a professional and all those, uh, hit a high, um, um, hold really high standards. So, you know, a lot of those things really just, you know, they're pretty, they say fairly, um, fairly common. Those are, those are my takeaways. Um, some of them at least from my time serving the SEAL teams. Yeah, that, that, uh, that makes sense. Was it hard for you to find a job or career that was you know, really truly fulfilling for you after having one of the most purpose-filled jobs out there and serving in the military? <clears throat> you know, transitioning from the military was more challenging than I thought it, it was going to be. I knew it was going to be a challenge. I definitely did not think it was going to be easy. Uh, and personally, when I, when I feel like there's a challenge or something that I'm, you know, unsure about, I, I usually, you know, it, I like that feeling, um, because I, I tend to work harder and I tend to, you know, really just drive 
hard and be more disciplined and, and, and be more, think through it, be a little bit more deliberate. Um, and I felt that feeling of uncertainty when I got out because I didn't have a plan. I knew I was going to grad school. That was a big part of my plan. And I was lucky to Mm -hmm. get picked up. I was at I did a one year master's program at Harvard Kennedy school. And I went there because I knew I heard about social entrepreneurship, which is, I knew a thread for me. I took the uniform off. I wasn't wearing a uniform anymore, but I wanted to continue to serve in another way. And when I heard about social entrepreneurship and obviously the Kennedy school was all about giving back, what can you, what can you do for others? And I was really, obviously really inspired by that. Um, I, I think that helped me go in that direction and then helped me navigate that transition. And I mean, I, I had took every, I talked to everybody I could, um, every meeting that someone would sit down with me with a, with a cup of coffee. I mean, during my time in the military, we were fairly busy. So I I didn't have my, I didn't have much time to like pick my head up and kind of look out what was there. Um, I knew I had a bunch of buddies that got out and went into finance. That seemed like a very typical thing for a, um, for guys from coming from the SEAL teams that go out, get an MBA and go work in finance. Yeah. Um, and that didn't, and that didn't interest me, uh, at all. Um, I wanted to start my own business. Uh, my father, um, was always some sort of, you know, some, in some ways a, an entrepreneur growing up, always encouraging me to hey, go out and, you know, kickstart your own thing. I think in the military, you had to be an entrepreneur in some aspects because you're, you're solving problems um, that there's no solutions for. So you're, you're thinking about being innovative. You're thinking about, you know, solving problems or coming up with solutions that are um, unconventional and different. So I think that entrepreneurial spirit and mindset that's in a lot of veterans. And um, I wanted to start my own company and, you know, definitely get a master's degree in the process, have a little time to, to kind of transition and um, that's where I started uh, both a, a nonprofit, uh, One Summit, and uh, a for-profit, which is O2X Human Performance. Right. And uh, before we get to a One Summit, do you think that that kind of sense of purpose and wanting to serve others was, I guess, maybe strong within you, for lack of a better term, uh, before you joined the SEAL teams? Or do you think it was really kind of I don't know, it grew, grew in you and it was kind of hammered into you while you served. No, I, I think it was, it, it definitely more of it came through, uh, once I was in the military, but it was before that. Um, you know, I, I go back once again to my family. I mean, there was, my mother would, you know, volunteer at church and, you know, we would go and maybe work at a, um, you know, a food kitchen, um, you know, kind of help. We're always, helping and that was a big part in volunteering and and that was a big thread of my family uh give it back uh and then i during my time in the military you know i think volunteer like it is a volunteer program it's very selfless but then i i was volunteering quite a bit um because of some things that happened within my family which is the reason why i started one summit and that that was, uh, you know, I lost my mother to cancer at a really young age. She was 58 years old um, and it kind of hit her pretty hard. She had breast cancer. So that was something I didn't have much exposure to in my life. And um, I started volunteering at a lot of different cancer 
foundations and just that thread of continuing to serve just that just was um something that inspired me and kind of going back to getting out of the military is i knew that i could not do a job um that i wasn't passionate about like i refused to get out and have a job that i i dreamed about and it was uncomfortable um you know i wanted to be a navy seal since we talked about seventh eighth grade and you lived your dream, your dream turns into a goal and you're, you're there and you're meeting some amazing people working around some incredibly talented people, um, selfless people, families that are strong, very resilient, you know, incredible history and just, just a, an amazing overall experience. <clears throat> and then transitioning, I just wasn't ready to, I wouldn't give up one aspect and, and transition from that to do something that I wasn't a hundred percent passionate about and something that I didn't look forward to get up every morning to do. Yeah. I think that's uh that's super smart. Uh, so getting into one summit now, maybe just provide a quick overview of one summit for people listening would be great. Yeah. So one summit is a uh, nonprofit. So it's a 501 C three um, that builds resilience in children with cancer through partnering the experiential learning community through, um, you know, partnering and providing mentorship one-on-one with a, with a Navy SEAL and we take them rock climbing. So we use rock climbing as a means of creating probably some shared adversity, some shared challenges and building resilience through self-confidence and developing courage. Awesome. And how often do you typically hold these events per year? So, you know, it's, um, it's our program. So we call them climb for courages. Uh, we started six years ago now in Boston. We started with uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So we work with Dana-Farber, Boston Children's. Uh, we work with Tufts. We had some, um, um, and we expanded from there to uh, New York City. I wanted to go back, and my mom was in the hospitals in New York City quite a bit, so I wanted to make sure that we were doing work with Sloan and some of the major hospitals in New York City. And then we expanded to uh, San Diego as well. Um, so, you know, we're in three major cities uh, across the country. Uh, we've had, you know, we roughly do, you know, outside the, even within the climb. So it's not just the climb. The climb is just the cat is the kickoff of the gateway for the relationship and the experience. Those mm-hmm. are how a lot of the lessons, but we have a ton of other um, program events that happen throughout the year. So, We've at this point put over 300 families through the program, kids through the program. Um, there's been about 300 SEALs that have come through, mentors. Uh, so we have guys that are on active duty, that are retired, that are um, you know veterans now. So we have a, a large group of veterans there that you know keep not just coming back. We get new people, so it's all through referral program and application. So the program is growing with children being involved. We have a sibling program because a lot of times when, you know, a cancer diagnosis happens, a lot of attention goes on to the, you know, the, the impacted child, but there's nothing for siblings. So we started a sibling program and, uh, you know, really it's, we're providing this experiential learning program that develops, you know, resilience. And, you know, a lot of things have come off to that to include a children's book that we have coming out uh, this year. Why did you decide on rock climbing as the activity through which to facilitate this experiential learning? You know, rock climbing was something I felt like always gave us a lot of, um, 
you know, life lessons, you know, in, in some ways, um, you know, it's kind of a metaphor for, for life in a lot of ways. Um, you know, these kids are, they're going through their journey. Everything in some ways are, they're just being a kid, they're playing sports, they're, you know, growing up, they're developing and then they get, they get thrown and there's mountain just gets dropped right onto their pathway. And, uh, they don't really have too many resources to kind of navigate and get this get way, get their way up to the summit and back down the other side. Yep. Um, and I felt like, <clears throat> you know, there was an opportunity here to, you know, through a lot, we did a lot of rock climbing, the SEAL teams too. Um, so I, I felt like I always felt that it was just such an experience and you're up there, you're pushing yourself. There's a lot of fear, um, that could be in rock climbing fears of starting something new fears of starting a new challenges. Sometimes, you know, obviously a lot of times you're, you're clearly tethered to a, to a, someone who's saving your life. So supporting you, that's, that's there on belay but it's you against the mountain and through that adversity and through that challenge and that triumph, you can learn a lot about yourself. Um, you know, like I said at the beginning, the pathway that you take in life and the pathway or the route that you think you're going to take up to the top and the route that you actually take are, are usually two different things. So it's, it was really nice to, um, you know, kind of share and help these guys and also goal setting too, knowing that, Hey, we're not looking at this very huge, overwhelming problem. I feel like, you know, right now is something in particular. People are not really so much dealing with the here and now. They're maybe getting overwhelmed and thinking, you know, when's this ever going to end? How long is this going to go for? But, you know, right. sometimes we got to focus on the here and now and be like, all right, what's our, what's our goals? You know, let's move one hand and foothold at a time. Let's take our time and incrementally work our way up here. And before we know it, you know, we're at the top. There's also a huge amount of trust that's there and I trust that that person that's working with you, that person that's there on belay, like saving your life, uh, you know, will, will be there when you need it. And we're also helping them learn some of those lessons of trust, trust the doctor, trust your parents. We're bringing the kids, the siblings and, you know, the uh, patients kind of together, you know, the siblings are, are merging back. We're giving them a shared experience and we're giving the siblings some of their own experience. They have their own mentor. They have their own um, learning and development. And it's been really, it's been really special to see where that goes. It, it far, it's far exceeded what I thought, where I thought it would go. The program, um, it's really, um, you know, it's been special. Um, there's a lot of discussion now about post-traumatic growth, meaning that you go through a very tough, challenging time. And you can emerge stronger from it. You actually could be stronger from that adversity. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, independent studies happening right now with one summit about the impact of the program and what it could do for other nonprofits, other groups that are trying to teach how to build resilience and how to increase that post-traumatic growth. And so I'm really proud to see where the organization is, has gone we have a, an executive director, Diane Lynch, who um, who's amazing. Who's got an amazing story of herself. Um, she lost her her son, one of her sons, to cancer, and she had stage four cancer herself. Um, but just a warrior, and um, she's a, she's been one of the leaders of One Summit, and it continues to grow and build from here. That's great. And what are the most fulfilling moments for you? And 
being the founder of one summit and leading these climb for courage events you, well at the events itself it's just it's hard to it's hard to explain it you know it's when people ask about the program and the impact or you know what's it like it's even the characterization that you had, like, okay, so what's the event? Most nonprofits they have events, right? But it's mm-hmm. it's it's much a it's hard to explain the experience that happens there, and it, a transformation that happens. And one of the doctors said to has said is like um, this guy, Doc St- Dr. Stephen Allen, who is the head, um, who's the chief of staff at Boston Children's Hospital. He's been doing this work for forty five years. Like Adam, that what you create in three to four hours, it takes us three to four years to develop with these children, wow. with these families. And, you know, what it just, uh, the, it's an inspiring, one of the most inspiring interventions that, that he's ever seen. And, um, to see the families, to see the shock and awe on even the parents of what their, what their, you know, child is doing because they think that it, it, they've been so debilitated for so long, but instilling that childhood back into you know, some of those, some of those things that they've missed, you know, they're, they've missed being at school. They miss being with their friends. They might've been at really athletic before. And now they're, they haven't played sports in a while or there's their um, kind of bodies broken down because of all the treatment. So <clears throat> it really is the program to see the, you know, smiles on the kids' faces and what they do and the impact, um, you know, the fa- like the families and the siblings bonding and um, to see the parent just stand off in the background and kind of see the healthcare workers. Because sometimes those child life specialists, they're in the trenches every day. It's like our frontline workers. We can see them out They're They're right now risking their lives for, for us. And, <clears throat> you know, it's sometimes they don't get the chance to, they're in the trenches so much. They don't get a chance to kind of see those smiles that they're putting on those kids' faces. And so it's nice to see them take a step back and the families to take a step back and for them to just sit off and just see this experience unfold. Those are uh, some of the, some of the best moments that I have from, from the program. Yeah. And the, does, does the kid, does the kid see a relationship continue for a long time after the, I guess, initial climb for courage program event? Yep. Yeah. So that relationship does. So, you know, that they, um, exchange information that's kind of facilitated, uh, through the, through the family, through the parents. And, um, then that relationship continues in a number of ways. We've had active duty seals that have gotten stationed overseas and developed such relationships with the family, um, that they've flown overseas and go to visit them in you know, great places. Um, they become close friends themselves. We've had relationships, bonds that are forming. We have, you know, seals that are, end up playing video games and or video gaming with their, with their, you know, mentee, uh, people that are at graduations that are there mentoring. Um, one of our first children, um, that came through the program, we call them like our, our little warriors there, the little, you know, they come in early in the mentees and we have some of them now that are going to college. And so wow. it's awesome to to really see where they came in, where they were, and then of course, <clears throat> not every story ends great. You know, we've lost a considerable amount of kids, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, just to have those for the parents to have those memories, 
and then to have you know some strength and some something for the siblings is you know that's that's what um you know that's what we're trying to do more and more of yeah yeah what are some ways someone can get involved in one summit one summit um you can go to the website um there's a lot of different ways there's volunteer opportunities on um of course uh, there's there's ways to to volunteer there's ways to donate um there's ways to um you know kind of help to be uh you know sponsor you know some help fund some of our our programs um, right now we're we're looking for a publish a book publisher because we have this incredible book that we um, developed and we're we're looking to see what the next step is with that Maybe we're going to self-publish it or find a publisher so there's so many different ways that people could help out um, not everybody can be at the climb for courage but you know everybody from obviously you know our program wouldn't be um, it's not all about donations but you know, their program doesn't run without funding. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so obviously, uh, there's that. And then there's obviously a lot of different community events that we do as well that people get involved in. We have a young professionals group. So we have a young professionals group in San Diego, Boston, and, um, and New York. So if that, you know, we have something for pretty much all different ages and groups. So we can find something for everybody. Right. Awesome. Uh, let's move to O2X now. Uh, me, I guess, as you did with one summit, provide a quick overview of O2X. Yeah. So O2X provides, um, education and training for tactical athletes. Um, the education and training we provide is performance based, but really those that impact a lot of the, um, offset and provide solutions for a lot of occupational challenges that are out there into the tactical community. And when I say tactical athletes or tactical community, I'm talking about first responders, military, those with physically, mentally, emotionally demanding jobs. And some of the challenges that we see in those jobs are ones that we saw firsthand in the military. And it could be cancer, cardiac disease, injury rates, mental health, uh, behavioral health uh, challenges, sleep, um, apnea, um, those types of aspects. So we hit everything on sleep, nutrition, conditioning, resilience, stress management, uh, and we model it all through our what we call our eat, sweat, and thrive model. Got it. And walk me through, I guess, the the genesis of the company, kind of, kind of why you decided to to start the company, why focus on tactical athletes, uh, whether you and your founders and so on. Yeah, the um, well, the focus came from a, a desire for internally for us to always want to be better through our time in the military. So the two other you know, co-founders I have, I got Paul McCullough, who is my teammate and uh, a good friend throughout my entire time in the SEAL teams, and uh, Gabriel Gomez. And Gabriel was a who you know. Mm-hmm. Gabriel was a, um, a Naval Academy then pilot and then seal then you know harbor business and, and and then he got into uh finance and private equity and then and then ran for a uh, u.s senate and so we all came together and it was very interse- intersection of i was transitioning from school from harvard kennedy school into starting my own company paul was working at an institutional um, finance company down in uh, down in boston and gabriel was just transitioning post-election and uh, we had a, a passion for 
helping others. There's the same thread here, right, Chase? It's just yeah, like, yeah. How can we how can we give back and how can we help other people? And we had a lot of experience through our time in the military about you know what went well with the training and then what we could have done a lot better. <clears throat> there wasn't a shortage of training on how to be a better you know shooter, jumper, diver, things like that. But you know when they take took about um, uh, we talk about taking care of yourself. We talk about humans over hardware all the time. That was an adage that was in the special operations community. We always take take care of the human. doesn't matter what the technology or the gear out there. It's like if there's no human being in there to absolutely be the best that they can be, then your outcomes are not going to be there. And that's what the critical important. That's the person that's making those decisions. So, you know, I've, during my time in the military, I definitely had an opportunity for one. I felt it myself with a number of surgeries and, you know, you know, the, the impacts of, you know, continual deployments and deployments and training, and there was burnout and fatigue and drop in energy. And I think we can all, whether we see this, because we do work in the corporate side too, but so whether it's corporations yeah. or tactical or, you know, professional sport teams or collegiate sport teams, like these problems are all very, very similar. In the tactical space, it's interesting to see because they have, uh, like fire service has an incredible amount of cancer because the carcinogens that are flame retardant materials and the carcinogens that are pretty much in and around everything. So you now these, they're getting cancer at a really early rate. The cancer rate is really high. Uh, you, we have, they have challenges on obesity, um, mental health, uh, clearly injuries between shoulders, uh, you know, lower back, hips, knees. So all these things do not put you in the best position to do your job. They also don't put you in the best position to sustain any type of any type of performance. Um, so people are dealing with pain and injury and a, a, a number of different things, and it's impacting them. It's impacting them at home. It's impacting them at their work. They have a, a very high risk job and um, you know, filled with uncertainty. There's a lot that's required of them, not only just in fire but in law enforcement. And as well as the military, um, and then our work doing um, and our success with the tactical community, obviously pro and pro college sports, as well as corporations, are very interested in it because you're like you you know we're we're innovating at such a quick clip, such a fast pace that our education program is very customized to who we're working with. It's very expeditionary. We're not like a brick and mortar. We don't try to bring people to our facility where we go to theirs. Um, we adapt to their environment. Um, so we put boots on the ground and it's very scalable. So through our in-person training and screenings or um, you know, virtual and online programming, we hit it from a bunch of different angles and uh, we tackle some of these very, very complex problems. But um, it's, it is definitely uh, ties to performance, but it ties also to longevity and sustainability. Got it. And walk me through what might be like a theoretical use case for your, your services from, say, like a fire department's perspective. Like, do you do you approach each and every kind of fire department with the same, I guess, plan going in, if that makes sense? No, because they're on different shift schedules and they have different size departments and forces. Right. So mm -hmm. we have to look at things very customized based on like, OK, how many how many let's just say firefighters Boston Fire has over 1500 firefighters. 
um, you know, what's their shift schedule? Um, you know, what, what, you know, what are they, um, you know, what are the demands of their job? Um, in particular, obviously in some areas or it's, it's obviously quite, quite urban here, you know, um, are they engine, uh, are they ladder, you know, are they, you know, are they the drivers? Like where do they Got fit it. into these different components? And on a law enforcement side, we do the same thing because being a patrolman is way different than being like serving warrants every night. And being a detective is very different than that, than being on a crime suppression unit. So <clears throat> just like if you were playing a sport, you know, you want to customize it, not only for the demographic, because the tactical space is unique that you have someone that's 21 years old or 65 years old. So you have, and it, you, you have someone who is a top, top athlete, maybe even played professional sports before. And then you have someone who is not, not much of an athlete or, you know, is not as in shape anymore or have had a bunch of injuries and, you know, is not where they need to be physically. So you have such a wide range. It can't be just this standard program that you just throw out there. The education pillars are all the same, but how it's customized and, and changed for the individual and the department and the job is going to be different. So I'll kind of give you like a, a use case that we came in Boston and um, we had, you know, we did roughly about 34 houses. So we, we did a workshop, in-person workshop. We have about 180 specialists right now across the country. They're experts in their field, sleep, nutrition, conditioning, resilience, stress management. They're the, they're the ones on the cutting edge. We hone that curriculum through like at headquarters here in Boston. And, um, you know, we're always looking to like, how do you make this very cohesive, well-taught um, program that sticks? How do we keep this as simple as possible? Because this science-based stuff is great. That's what our program is, but also can get very technical, very confusing. So we you know, bring that all together. We make it simple. We make it easy. We deliver it the right way. We talk to the client as much as we can. We learn much about their job. Obviously we have firefighters and, you know, uh, police officers and military. We have a, a whole athletes. We have a whole group of people that's very, um, unique to be able to deliver this education and also customize it. And then we conduct a series of in-person workshops, um, depending on the size for Boston. We started out with you know, just one four day workshop. And then we went from, you know, one representative per, you know, one per house, we did one per shift. And then we went, they it had so much impact that they were saying, Hey, in 31 years of fire service, we had, this is the best training I've ever received. Cause we were taking things that, you know, we learned and quite honestly, we made it a lot better than what we had. And, and we took it and we were able to move really fast and we were able to deliver it and improve every single time. And we just continue to grow from there. And we've put, you know, through our four day program, we put like 1200, uh, maybe like about 1200 uh, Boston firefighters through the program. We're doing two day refresher training. We go to each firehouse and we, we sit down there with, with each uh, working group and we do movement screeners and body comps on everybody. We give them customized programs we have an on-site specialist who is actually permanently stationed there at Boston Fire that serves and now is doing a ton of telehealth work. Okay. So they're they're um, you know they're full time uh, with them, 
And then we have a series of virtual programs too. So everything is constantly adapting and iterating. So over time, we are hiring people or really just screening people and finding the best specialists. But then we bring them through our program to train them up so they understand the groups, they understand the demographics, they understand the um, the demands and work, and we get them ramped up to actually be a presenter. It's quite a bit of a process. And then once that they're there, you know, there's constant evaluations. We're constantly innovating in our program because we, you know, we demand the best. We demand absolutely the best uh, education curriculum and specialists for um, the people that, you know, that bring us in uh, to help them because they have a high risk job and we want to make sure that we are the most innovative um, that we can possibly be. So the, the good the, the good news is that we're doing tons of iterations. So we're not just in Boston and New England. Uh, probably our biggest um, biggest area that we work is the Mid Atlantic. So all throughout the DC, um, you know, Metro Beltway area, Florida, um, Texas, California, Montana, um, a little bit into Colorado. So we're we're we've been growing pretty quick over the last six years. And we just want to continue to get our education program out there. Um, and, you know, people can find that in our book. I know you said you have the, a copy of the book. I do. Um, that's, we were printing 500 page binders uh, and we spent about two and a half years really trying to put it all together. And Chase, you know, being, being into this space, it's really hard to, to tell the story of all how all these things interconnect, right? Yep. And so when we talk about holistic or complete education, we need to make sure that everyone understands how all these pieces of the puzzle, you know, just something like you can't outwork a bad fork there. You, you know, you, you, if you're, if you're training hard and you're not eating right and you're not sleeping right, you're not managing your stress, you're not worrying about, you know, on the mental side, like, you know, you're going to get limited results. And um, we know that it could be extremely overwhelming for people. So that's why we talk about the 1%. When we talk about 1%, like what's your 1%? Because you want to get 1% better every single day. So um, we can incrementally build great habits and people to start feeling better and uh, enjoying making it to retirement and then enjoying that much-deserved retirement when they get there. Right. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. So it, it sounds like that, and, and, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of the main focus with O2X is around looking at kind of the teams and or organizations performance as a whole kind of as it stands kind of when you go in and improving that but in order to do so making sure that your approach to kind of performance improvement is very is very tailored to each individual within that team or organization is that is that kind of a, a fair way yeah, to put it yeah just yeah and also a big part too is understanding like the cultural side like especially in the tactical community and I think that's what a lot of us, from from the founders' perspective, we kind of bring that cultural competence, there, cultural understanding. So, culturally, how to fit it, training-wise, how do we fit it? Um, you know, from resources, Manning, how to creatively get the training. But yeah, you know, you're looking at it from a performance lens. But we also know it's systemic problems. It is an incredible amount of health problems plaguing the first responder units across the country. It's cancer, cardiac disease, injuries, mental health. They are prevalent everywhere. The cancer is a little less in the law enforcement side, but suicides more. And mm -hmm. it's incredible. You know, these problems, um, tons of studies that are published um, out there 
alarming amount of results and details about the impact of these jobs on those who are serving. And you got to do it. You got to you got to get ahead of it. Um, you have to, you know, look from prevention versus curative. And leaders now are getting it. They're slowly understanding that. Look at if you take the example that we're in right now, that this coronavirus is attacking those with compromised immune systems, right? It's attacking, it's, it's having the biggest impact on them. So obesity, type two diabetes, people with compromised immune systems, respiratory issues, unhealthy people, it does not make it any easier. And it's harder to be on the front lines fighting this and to be able to provide support if you're already in a position where you're, you're most vulnerable. And I think that that is now becoming more and more prevalent. And I think now more departments, more leaders across the country is like, yeah, we, we need to be in a better place before these things happen. Cause we don't know what's going to happen and when they're going to happen. Right. Yeah. That make that makes sense. So how, so how did you and your team come up with the eat, sweat and thrive methodology? Well, it was, you know, a lot of it was through, you know, bringing all of our specialists together, um, looking at the science research, um, looking at what it took it, from a practitioner standpoint, what it would take, um, you know, during our careers, um, you know, what are those fears of sleep, nutrition, conditioning, resilience, stress management, how to maximize all them. But we wanted to keep things simple, um, you know, and so we came up with the eat, sweat and thrive. It's just makes some making it a lot easier for, you know, those who come through the training program just to think about it. Um, you know, when they get lost or, um, you know, they're wondering what they should do. We kind of want kind of think back through. Okay, like you know, eat. Let me think through the eat, sweat, thrive. The eat being the nutrition, the sweat being the conditioning and injury prevention. That thrive being kind of all the neck up stuff, the mental performance, um, the sleep, managing stress, mental health. And that, that kind of boils that down, but we wanted to keep it really, really clean and really simple. Right. And I'm guessing there's definitely intention behind why those words are in that order. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's on that side of it. I mean, we believe all the pillars are equally weighted, you know, so you have to, you know, spend the, you know, you have to equally look at all these parts eat, sweat, and thrive that have to be equally balanced. Now we know that people come through our workshops and through our training or read our book, they're going to start wherever they're most comfortable. You know, for some of them, they might start at the, you know, more nutrition. And those are, those are the areas where they need to prove the most. Some are going to start on the conditioning side and just making those like first steps. Some maybe probably going to start on the thrive side, maybe work on the sleep. Now, if I had to pick one pillar that would be a little bit more I would lean more heavier on it would be definitely would be the sleep. Like you definitely need that sleep. You definitely need that recovery. You have to really get that one down, but we equally mm -hmm. weight all those, all the pillars. Right. Okay. Got it. What do you see as the biggest areas for growth for O2X? Well, you know, right now there's still, there's still education to department leadership uh, and first responders and also within the military about the human side. And you can have all the equipment 
all the gear in the world, but if you're not taking care of that individual, there is still discussions that we have every single day with different departments, um, different organizations that um, they say it, but this hasn't been a full forced focus yet to invest in your people. You know, we can say it, of course, people believe it. If it's a multiple choice test or fill in the blank, they'll probably get the answer right. But to actually do it and to invest in education and training, that is something the military gets really well. But to invest in the people, that's the most important thing they can do. If you don't get ahead of this, and, and health, if you look at healthcare companies, healthcare companies have figured this out. It's not, you don't necessarily need to quantify uh, all these numbers now. I mean, healthcare, healthcare companies know that if you go get a physical and you get ahead of things, it's a, it's a part of prevention and it will save them money, right? This is something that if you do training, you focus on taking care of being the healthiest you can be good things are going to happen. There's going to be less injuries. There's going to be uh, you know, a greater amount of weight control. There's going to be uh, more stress management. You're building a, a more resilient force to when something happens like the Boston bombing or uh, tragedies or dealing with car wrecks or um, you know, complex, uh, stressful in- environments, um, pandemics, Things that are that will come up that you're in the tactical space, you are going to be more prepared for them, and you're going to be better off. the The hurdle on some of this is just that is just time. You know, uh, Chase, I think you understand it from an education perspective. It's just it's, you know, there has to be um, the leadership has to be willing to kind of make that investment to understand the value of it, and there's still a lot of education. What is alarming mm-hmm. now and it's ir- irrefutable is the numbers that we that we see you know the numbers that we see of the cancer and the cardiac disease the mental health the suicide like you can't if this was your family you would do something about it hands down you would not you would be on the phone right now with a doctor or a specialist and trying to get your family help it should not be any different for department leaders. If you have that many suicides, you can't turn your head on it. You need to do something. If you have heart attacks because people are out of shape or they're not taking care of themselves, well, we have to do something. There has to be some sort of intervention there. So I see the area for growth for us is still going to be tactical. It's still going to be police, fire, military, EMS. You know, we enjoy our work. We do a lot of work with the Chicago Blackhawks and some uh, hockey and uh, with Harvard Harvard sport teams and um, some other college D1 colleges and some corporations and stuff. Happy to do that work, um, but I definitely see the growth and um, the focus for O2X being in the in the tactical space. Well, we're working now with the Army, um, the Army National Guard. The Army just changed their physical fitness test. Um, it's called the ACFT now. And so it's six now. It's not three events. It's six. It's a lot longer. Uh, it's more more functional, but a little bit more challenging. So we've been working with the uh, Mass Army National Guard and and helping the National Guard um, across the country out to kind of figure out this transition to be more ready. And it ties to a be- readiness, resilience, but also retention. Chase. So mm-hmm. there's a retention side in all these jobs. You're trying to keep people healthy happy, performing high, and then in the jobs, just like corporations do, just like corporations would. 
Yeah, and that kind of leads into my follow-up question is kind of how how do you best make sure that the impact of your workshop or kind of whatever that initial uh, intervention is that you make sure that that impact is sustained kind of for each individual that attends. Yeah. Well, customization is important. And then also providing resources for them after the workshop. We say we don't want to be like the sunburn session that something happens or you go to this great motivational speech and it fades over time. Right. Right. (laughs) You you kind of walk out and you're like, what did that person just say? Or you have to remember it. No, that's we're, we provide sustaining training and support and resources, reach back support through virtual programs um, where they can 24 seven, get back, get back to us. Um, you know, that type of training and customization. We also have a spend a ton on uh, relationship management and relationship management being that we stay in contact and we're always looking at ways how we can better continue the program um, going and continue the program excitement after we leave. That's them writing postcards to themselves at the end of the workshop or us sending it to them after a couple of 90 days. <laughs> you know, that's mm-hmm. us, you know, shooting them an email or text and say, hey, checking in on them. It's making it very personalized. And you might say from a business standpoint, um, especially from your PE background, like, how do you scale that? But we have, you know, we've done a great job of, of thinking because we started with Boston Fire, which is a fairly large department, and we're started with the, a lot of these large groups. Washington D.C. has, uh, you know, about 20, uh, 2,600. and so you know we're every year, you know, we put about eight or nine thousand tactical athletes over a hundred plus events without a dip in quality control it, through our program, and then even obviously even double that through virtual. So you have to find something for everybody. You got to get people going um, at the same time, understanding that not everybody's going to be able to get to a workshop and you have to just constantly challenge and think about that. And that's what we do all day long. Just think about how we can make our program better, how we can make it more impactful, how we can, um, you know, really um, help these men and women um, on the front lines. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what's your kind of ultimate vision for O2X? We want to be, you know, we talk about being the world leader in human performance. And when people think about human performance and education and training on maximizing performance, the go-to people that are, you know, when people think about, hey, what it, you know, I've heard something on this, or I'm looking at developing into a training program. When people think of world leader of human performance, I want people thinking about 2X. And I think we're, um, we're well on our way. Awesome. And I guess bringing this back to the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what would you say has been your driving force throughout your military and professional career? And do you think it's changed much if at all? My driving force, you know, my driving force has always been, you know, my family, my friends and my teammates. Um, you know, the people that I, that I've worked, um, you know, alongside and, um, I I feel, you know, I want to be, um, you know, they're there for them. And that's always motivated me. Um, you know, going back to, I think about after losing my mother, I, I think about her a lot. Um, you know, now that I have a wife and a, and a baby on the way, like just, um, you know, the driving force for me is that my values and my goals in life are 
in the same category. They're there. They both are synonymous for me. And, um, you know, I got a lot of family, friends, and, um, you know, teammates, you know, O2X, One Summit, all the other things that um, I, I like to get involved in, and, and I want to be there for them. And um, I want to do, a, a, you know, I want to do a, a good job and take care of them. And, um, you know, I think that to me has always been a, a driving force. Um, you know, just excited about what we do. And I, I look at, I'm so impressed at, you know, what um, the team at O2X and One Summit. And, you know, I look at uh, the experiences I had in life and I'm, I'm just, uh, I feel very, very lucky. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's awesome. And, and finally to, to end here, um, where is generally the best place for someone to, to start when looking to improve performance at work or fitness wise, if you had to kind of make a recommendation? Well, I would say start at, start at o2x.com. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, say that start there. I mean, it really is a, you know, I, you know, pick up the book, um, take a look at it, find something in there, think about it from a 1%, you know, high level to answer your question. Don't get overwhelmed by this, these mil, million things. Don't think of it as a new year's resolution. Think of it, think of it as how can I just get 1% better? And when you're thinking in those 1% increments, you're thinking about climbing the mountain, you're not thinking about the mountain. You gotta, you gotta climb. You're just thinking about what's my next step. What's the here and now that's the best way to start. And, uh, it'll, you'll be unrecognizable, whatever your goal is, you know, come, come end of year. Um, if you're just taking those small little steps. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree. Awesome. Adam, thanks again for coming on the show. This was, this was great. Thanks Chase. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, where can people go if they want to learn more about one summit and O2X? Um, so one summit, um, one summit.org. Um, we're also on social media. Same thing with O2X. O is in optimize. So O2X.com. And then we're on social as well. Um, so you can reach out through the website or social media and you'll get a hold of me or hold anybody from my team. Great. And you all can also visit my website, chaserza.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserza4 for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.